everyone, and welcome. I don't see any visitors, but in case anyone doesn't know me, I'm Matt Fender, and we are about to start six weeks on apologetics. Um, the original plan had been to do um, six weeks on covenants, but since there was a lot of studying of covenants in this last year, I decided to do this instead. Um, I have taught this material uh, to our high school kids a couple of times, and so I thought it was, was time to uh, do it with the adults. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather here together on the Lord's Day. We do not take it for granted, Father, that we can meet openly without fear of arrest or detention. We ask that you will be with us here this morning as we seek to study the discipline of apologetics, how we might defend the faith uh, to the skeptic and the unbeliever and for the edification of the church. Uh, we pray for the children who are being instructed elsewhere in the building. We pray that you would um, regenerate their hearts, Father, take away their hearts of stone, give them hearts of flesh, give wisdom and eloquence to those who are teaching them. And we pray that each and every one of those young people will grow to say that he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So those of you who have seen me teach before, which is probably most of you, know that what it usually consists of is I stand up and talk as fast as I can for an hour in, in hopes of getting through a bunch of material that I have prepared. And while um, that is often helpful, um, I hope, um, we're going to do something a little different this morning. Um, I, I did a class five years ago, I can't believe it's been five years ago, on presuppositional apologetics. It was a, one, it was a one-time class, and while I think it was well-received, um, I also think, having talked to some folks about it, that it was a lot of information really fast that was hard to grasp, and while everyone might have walked away thinking, oh, that's interesting, I'm not sure that anyone walked away with a command of how to employ this apologetic technique. And so what we're going to try to do over the next six weeks is slow down and take this a chunk at a time. I want to promote a fulsome discussion amongst the class, and I want everybody to really um, dig into these ideas because ultimately this apologetic technique is, in my view, the, the correct one for our time and place, and it's one that everybody can do. So um, Sparky passed out some handouts, and what I'm hoping we can do as we go through is you know, sort of fill in the blanks here as kind of you know, prefab notes, and that'll help everyone retain this stuff. And as I said, we're going to kind of work through it a block at a time. So th this week is going to be primarily by means of introduction and groundwork, um, and the next week we're going to start delving in to the technique itself a little more. I think one week I'm also going to show you a video um, from the late uh, T.E. Greg Bonson, who did a lot of, developed a lot of the material that we're, we're talking about. And what I've tried to do is kind of take material that was developed by Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson and synthesize it and simplify it um, and apply it to our time, which we're now 30 years on from, from Bonson's death. So that said, um, apologetics is the art, the discipline, the practice of defending the Christian faith. Um, it is often associated with evangelism because we often find ourselves in apologetics conversations while doing evangelism. We're going to talk briefly about why we should study it, types of it, and then look in more detail at the one apologetic method in particular. This is Cornelius Van Til's definition, or one he once said, apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. Now, I like this definition because I think it helps us think about 
Christianity in a way that maybe we don't always naturally think of it, right? If you, most of when you walked in here this morning, if I ask you, you know, is Christianity a philosophy, many of you would have said no, or you would have been skeptical of that proposition. And so, but it's hopeful, and, and the way we're going to do the, this apologetic is we're going to be comparing Christianity to other worldviews, right? And some of the worldviews we're going to be comparing it to, their proponents would not describe them as a religion. If I were to speak to the secular materialist, perhaps the skeptical philosophy professor at the university, and said, you know, what is your religion? He's likely to respond that he has no religion. He says, I'm an agnostic, or I'm an atheist, or I'm a skeptic. And therefore, if you say, well, I want to compare and contrast my religion with yours, that would not be a very fruitful um, approach. But as it turns out, and hopefully for us, um, Christianity is in fact a philosophy, and, and, there, and therefore, uh, it can be compared in a, in a useful way with other non-Christian philosophies. So, what does that mean? Well, I mean, if we break it down at its most basic level, thinking about the Greek roots, you know, a philosopher would be a, you know, a lover of wisdom, if we, if we sort of stick those things together. But, you know, a, a philosophy, according to our, in English usage, and I just looked this up in the dictionary, um, it's the most basic beliefs, concepts, and attitudes of an individual or group. So if we accept that definition, do you think it's fair to say that Christianity would be a philosophy? I see his head's nodding. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. Um, and Sparky, is there a handout blank that we should have filled in at this point? There are three, yes. Let's, let's, let's do them. Um, what's the, maybe why don't you just help us with that? So apologetic, simply put, is the defense of the Christian faith. So the second one, we're filling in philosophy of, twi- of life twice, and that's based on Van Til's definition. And so the, the third one is the definition of philosophy that I just read you, uh, where we fill in beliefs, concepts, and attitudes. So as we think about this, right, and we say that Christianity you know, fits this definition of supplying our most basic beliefs, concepts, and attitudes, you know, we need to remember that Many in the world around us, including many who would claim the name of Christian, wouldn't agree with this definition, or at least don't really believe it, right? I've had plenty of conversations with people over the years who say, oh, you know, somebody just became a Christian. Oh, well, what was he before, right? The idea that you had to be in one bucket or another, right? <laughs> well, if you're not a Hindu, you were baptized, you're a baby, you must be a Christian, you know, it's, it was just, it's just sort of little thing you keep in a box up on your closet shelf, and, and every year at Christmas and Easter, you take down the box, and you go over and you take it out, and you go over and participate, you know, because that's, that's what you do, because you're, you know, you're, you're not a, a Muslim, so you must be a Christian. Um, but that's, that's not what Christianity demands. If the claims, and you're going to hear me say this again, if the claims of the Bible and Christ's death and resurrection are true, then they necessarily become the central tenets of your life. If Christ was raised, then that is the central event of all history. If Christ was not raised, then why are you here this morning? Why am I here? I should go over to CanCan and have a nice brunch instead, because I'm just wasting my time doing something foolish. So it's really that simple. Either, either at a real time and place, in real history, Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, or he did not. It is a question of fact, and it is a central fact that determines everything else in the life of the believer. So we're going to be exploring this idea further 
And that's going to be one of, the, one of the sort of key tenets in the way we approach this. So we can also refer to the Christian philosophy of life as the Christian worldview. And I'm sure many of you have heard that before. If you listen to Al Mohler, he talks about it every morning, you know, the analysis of the news based from a Christian worldview. So we're going to talk a lot about what a worldview is, what it demands, and how it dominates and controls our thinking, and then that's going to then drive the way we do apologetics. So why are we doing this, right? Why do we do apologetics? Well, um, Hopefully, we might remove some impediments to faith that are held by others, right? Ultimately, faith comes from God, but at the end of the day, we hope that in talking to the skeptic or the unbeliever, we can, you know, perhaps put a stone in his shoe, give him something to worry about, make him doubt his existing worldview, and consider that perhaps he needs to reevaluate the claims of the gospel. We can strengthen our own faith and strengthen the faith of other believers. I don't think this is the primary purpose of apologetics by any means, but it's certainly a benefit of it and that it helps us understand uh, the ramifications and the strength of our position. And then finally, and most importantly, because the Bible tells us to, um, it is a command. So this is 1 Peter 3.15, which is sort of the foundational verse that most people think of when they think of apologetics. Um, so starting at verse 13, I'll read. Now, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience... So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, as I think I put on the handout, this is an apostolic command. It's not an apostolic suggestion. Um, and it doesn't say that it only applies to seminary professors and philosophers and um, a special subset of believers. Right? It is a command that is applicable to all of us, and we all should be able to do it, and we all can do it with a little instruction, and that's what we're going to try to achieve over the next few weeks. Um, the word translated here as make a defense is um, from the Greek word apologia. Um, the English word apology derives from that, although the contemporary use of the word apology is, would be misleading. Um, sometimes if you, if you like to read old Puritan text, you'll notice they start at the beginning with an apology, where the guy sort of makes an argument for his book. It's sort of, sort of like an introduction. It says, you know, well, here's why you should read my book, and here's why it's helpful. And that would be a, a use of it closer to the, the, the Greek usage. Um, but this, this word appears eight times in the New Testament, and it always has this defense of um, giving you the, the defense or giving an answer or, or defending something. So this is 2 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ." For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So this text, and particularly the description of Paul's um, rhetorical method of taking every thought captive, is, um, is also heavily associated with apologetics and seen as part of our, our command for what we should do. And Sparky, I think there's a blank or two I have now passed over. Oh, we've, we're, yeah, we've not, we've not gotten to a presuppositional definition yet. Apologetics has its limits. We can't talk someone into believing in Christ. Faith must come from God. And those are the blanks for number four. We can't talk someone into believing in Christ. Faith must come from God. And we, and we know this, right? This is part of our, our doctrine. Um, here's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, paragraph 1. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And then if we look at the proof text there from Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 27, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this is important because understanding, a reformed soteriology, a reformed understanding that we can't talk people into believing that Jesus, if God has not given them faith and changed their heart first, is part of what underlies our apologetic approach. Because I can talk from now until the eschaton, and I'm not going to change anybody's heart. But what I can do is sweep away the rubble. What I can do is expose the inconsistency, demonstrate that the person to whom I'm speaking has an inconsistent worldview that is not grounded in anything rational, and they're just making a bunch of assumptions and acting on their emotions without anything underneath it. And I can compare to that and demonstrate that Christianity, on the other hand, is a cohesive and consistent worldview that holds together and is grounded upon the basic assumption, the basic presupposition that the Bible is true. And we will readily concede to, to our unbelieving, skeptical interlocutor that that is our basic assumption. Yes, yes, sir, yes. The Bible is true, and that is my most basic belief. And I cannot prove to you, sir, that the Bible is true. But I know it to be true, because the Bible itself is God's Word, and it speaks to me based upon the majesty of the style, etc., and also because the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that the Bible is true. And I understand, sir, that you do not, as you sit here today, believe that. But if you grant me that the Bible is true, then everything else I have to say to you will follow from that. It is logical, it is consistent, and it is reasonable. And so that is, that is a sort, of, sort of the approach we're going to take here. So let's talk about Methods of apologetics. The other method of apologetics 
that is um, most popular and, and vastly more popular, frankly, than, than what I'm going to teach you is evidentiary apologetics. And this is where you seek to you know, prove the Christian faith through evidence, right? And this is where people will talk about how many witnesses saw Jesus resurrected and uh, the very, various sort of you know, historical stuff they'll try to build up. And the problem with all of that, of course, is that it, it still leads you to say, well, but those witnesses could have been lying. You know, if we look at this, you know, Josh McDowell is the most famous living proponent of this. I'm sure some of you have read his books. I saw him speak once in college. Um, and there he is. Um, so this is a quote from his, one of his books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He goes, How high do you think the stack of New Testament manuscripts would be? Think about this. Of just the 5,800-plus Greek New Testament manuscripts, there are more than 2.6 million pages. Combining both the Old and the New Testament, there are more, 60, there are more than 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls. So it, we might find it encouraging to hear that, right? Because what does that tell us? Well, if we believe the Bible's true, then that might help sort of build up our belief that it's been kept sort of intact, you know, that since the time of its writing, or close to the time of its writing, it's been consistent. It tells us that, that if we believe that's true, um, then, which requires us to make some assumptions, then we're going to conclude that it's, the Bible is not a recent invention, right? It wasn't composed in the last few generations, at least for the last 1,500 years, because we can, you know, we could carbon date a Greek manuscript from the 5th or 6th century and say, ah, look, there it is, and it's almost the same as my Bible is today. So it, it does, to some extent, prove to us that the Bible is not a recent invention. But it says nothing to us about whether the Bible is true. I can't talk you into believing the Bible is true. There's no amount of evidence I can pile up to convince you that the Bible is true. So in my view, this, this evidentiary approach is of limited value, and I think we're going to see that more and more as we dig in. That's not saying it's of no value. If you find it helpful, fine. But I don't find it to be helpful, particularly in dealing with a skeptic, a, a secular materialist, the sort of person we're likely to encounter in 21st century Virginia. So what we're going to be talking about is presuppositional apologetics. Um, we need a better name for it because it just sounds intimidating, right? But um, presuppositional apologetics seeks to defend the faith by exposing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, contrasting them with those of the Christian, and demonstrating the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. This is number five on your handout, um, and it's there word for word. It seeks to defend the faith by exposing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, contrasting them with those of the Christian, and demonstrating the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. Now, somebody out there right now is thinking, well, gosh, Matt, that sure sounds harsh. You think that, you think there are, that, that, that you know, this non-Christian worldview is irrational and absurd? Yes, yes, I do. And you will, too, by the time you finish this class. And that is not to say that you need to stare at somebody and say, sir, your worldview is irrational and absurd. Uh, that is probably not particularly winsome. It might be under some circumstances, but, but, most, but most of the time, not. Most of the time, if we're going to do evangelism, we do it most effectively in the context of relationship, where we have mutual respect, where we have a certain level of trust, and where we can get a reasonable hearing. But for purposes of understanding our method, for purposes of our class, Fundamentally, not believing in God is irrational and absurd because it is contrary to the created order. It is contrary to that which is written on your heart. It is contrary to your conscience because that, that person that you were talking to across the table at the coffee shop, you want to know what? Even though he says he doesn't believe in God, he believes in God. He knows God is real. He's at war with God. 
and he's denying the existence of God. He has been deceived. His mind is broken by sin. And we're going to try to help him in hopes that the Lord will regenerate his heart. There's Cornelius Van Til. He sort of, uh, you know, invented this apologetic method. I hate to say that because I'm sure somebody else before him said something like that, but his name is most heavily associated with it. He's a 20th century um, theologian, taught for many, many years at Westminster Theological Seminary. I don't think he was actually of the, the original founders. I think he joined shortly after it was established. But he was a, um, extremely influential, taught a lot of, of, of men in the next generation who became very influential um, and is sort of a giant of the faith, in, in my view. Um, this is Greg Bonson. Greg, Greg Bonson was an OPC teaching elder, died as a young man in the mid-'90s at the age of, like, early 40s, of a head congenital heart defect. Um, he was a student of Van Til's. He also had a Ph.D. in philosophy with a focus on epistemology. So he, he sort of took this big time and made it kind of the focus of his his studies. Um, he sort of took Van Til and kind of, I think, explained it in a way that, at least in my view, is much, much, much easier to work with. He has a, a sort of a tome of a book that's about this thick called Van Til's Apologetic, um, which is about 10 times longer than any book Van Til ever wrote. And he, uh, but he explains it in a way that's very clear uh, if you're willing to do the work. But you don't have to do the work because you're going to come to this class, and I'm going to boil it down for you. Um, so uh, presuppositional apologetics, and I've got a typo there, is a method of apologetics that defends the Christian faith by establishing the impossibility of the contrary. You follow that? So I can't prove to you that A is true, but it's either A or B, and so I'm going to disprove B. And so once I disprove B, your only choice is A. right? And that's essentially what we're seeking to do here. We're going to establish that the alternatives to Christianity can't be right. And therefore, Christianity. Now, very importantly, how many of you, I'll just ask for a show, how many of you have ever had a conversation with someone where somebody said, I don't believe in God, can you prove to me God, is, God exists? Anybody ever had that conversation? Y'all, many of us had, right? If you, if you went to college and you stayed up late at night in the, in the dorm room, you probably had this conversation at some point. Um, uh, but so, the problem and the error that you probably committed in that conversation, which I certainly have committed many times, is you concede the not-God assumption. You had the conversation on the basis that God doesn't exist, and I have to prove he exists. Don't do that. You know why? Because God exists. So why would I concede the other guy's argument as a way to start? We don't do that. And I'm going to teach you not to do that. I'm going to teach you instead to go on offense. We're not going to start on defense. We're not going to start having to defend that God exists to the guy and assuming that he's right. No, no, sir. God exists, and you know he exists, and your, your worldview is simply wrong. And let me show you why your worldview isn't cohesive and doesn't hold together, and, you have, and, and, and God is real. Because it's, why? Because the Bible says so. And it's just that simple. We're going to expose the inconsistency of his worldview, and we're going to go on offense. So I've used the word presupposition now something like 30 times in the last five minutes. Um, what does that mean? Well, here's the definition that I put on the handout. Um, this is a, uh, one from Greg Bonson in his book on Van Til, it's an, which oddly isn't a footnote. You would think that it wouldn't be in a footnote, that it would be right up there in the main text, but uh, anyway. Um, an elementary assumption in one's reasoning or in the process by which opinions are formed, a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of beliefs. So is there a number six on the handout? It's an elementary assumption in one's reasoning 
or in the process by which opinions are formed, a personal commitment that is held at the most basic level of one's network of beliefs. And the best example I could give you of a presupposition is the Bible is true. Um, but there are many others. Um, I think I've got a list coming up here in a couple of slides. But something like, you know, my memories are real and weren't implanted in me. That, you know, I have presuppositions about the physical world, that if I drop this pencil, it's going to fall to the ground because the, the laws of physics are going to work the same from day to day. That if I go home and eat a cheeseburger and it smells and tastes like a healthy, wholesome cheeseburger, it's going to nourish my body because that's based, you know, in the past, whenever I ate a cheeseburger, it would nourish my body and didn't make me sick. So I'm going to assume that's going to continue from day to day. Well, on what basis do I make, do I make that assumption? How about things like reason? The idea that we can think, think, have ideas that we think in our head, and they come together, and there's a system of logic and ordered thinking. The, the fact that you, know, you can't have two seemingly contradictory propositions that are true at the same time. Well, why? What is your basis for that? And if you don't have something at the bottom, the answer, you don't really have an answer to that. We're going to dig more into that. Um, Presuppositions form a wide-ranging foundational perspective or starting point in terms of which everything else is interpreted and evaluated. Presuppositions have the greatest authority in one's thinking, being treated as one's least negotiable beliefs, and being granted the highest immunity to revision. And I, I might suggest to you that as we're seeking to put this stuff in our immediate cultural context, that there's a lot of people walking around out there who have presuppositions on things like sexual behavior, that it's at the height of their network of beliefs that I should be able to engage in whatever sexual conduct I want, and everybody else has to encourage it and say it's good. There's a lot of people who think stuff like that, right? Um, this is from Francis Schaeffer. People have presuppositions, and they will live more consistently on the basis of these presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. By presuppositions, we mean the basic way an individual looks at life, his basic worldview, the grid through which he sees the world. Presuppositions rest upon that which a person considers to be the truth of what exists. People's presuppositions lay a grid for all they bring forth into the external world. Their presuppositions also provide the basis for their values and therefore the basis for their decisions. That's in the first chapter of Schaeffer's um, How Should We Then Live? In other words, a presupposition is a basic assumption that you live your life by and use to interpret everything else. Um, and here's some examples. I mentioned some of these earlier. The reliability of memory, reliance on your senses and reasoning, the continuity of the physical world. Right? These are things we all take for granted, um, that everybody takes for granted. Right? Even the people who say they don't believe in God, they assume these, these things are true. I think I said everything on the slide. So this is um, from, I think it's a letter that Van Til wrote to Bonson that I, I think is a, is a terrific summary of the method. It is never about winning, Greg. It's about exposing their inconsistency. God does everything else. Never forget the antithesis. And we're going to talk a little more about antithesis, but the idea that there is a basic 
clash between the Christian worldview and any other worldview. They can't both be true. And so we're, we're going to expose the inconsistency in the other worldview, compare it to Christianity. That's essentially it. That's what we're going to do. Um, number seven in your handout, I covered earlier up in the slides. 1 Peter 3.15 gives us a command. And that command is for all Christians. Command all Christians. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You are 100% correct. So the comment from Ari Hutton is that um, I didn't have no idea that after knowing him for 15 years that he was a math major, but apparently he was. <laughs> and he, and he, he points out that, um, that in mathematics, this idea that there are underlying assumptions of, of all, our, all of our ideas and beliefs is most, laid most bare because mathematics is a formal system. And we have proofs and, and, and very bare logic laid out. And you know, even as you're studying math as a formal discipline, you'll start by being taught the, the, the presuppositions, the underlying assumptions. And that brings to mind Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which I am not about to go into, that, that, all, that all formal systems can't prove themselves, right? That there's always an, an, an exception. And that's true, and I think Gödel, who I have no idea if he was a Christian, but he, he, was, he was grasping a little bit of this, this insight that really applies to, to everything. So a- absolutely. Um, most of the people that we encounter here in Richmond, Virginia, and River City in 21st century America, um, who aren't Christians, or who don't subscribe to, you know, unless they're a Hindu or something, are going to be secular materialists, whether they know it or not. That is to say, they believe that the physical world is all there is. They don't give any authority to the transcendental. They might sort of, they might not actively deny the existence of God, but they're going to be skeptical about it, and they don't think that God, the, the idea of God, or the person of God, is meaningful to them and how they live their lives, right? They live their lives on a materialist basis, that it is what it is. And you'll also notice that these are the sort of people that get very uncomfortable talking about death. They're the sort of people who don't like to go to funerals and will avoid them at all costs. And when you say something like, well, what do you think happens when you die? They get real quiet and want to change the subject. And, because, and that is because they have no answer. And they're terrified of death. Because at bottom, and I said this before, they know God exists, and they know they're at war with him. And they know there's going to be a reckoning, and they're seeking to avoid it. So what we're going to do with the secular materialist is we're going to point out that inconsistency in his worldview and paving the way for the gospel. So a secular materialist will typically utterly deny the supernatural, um, or at least be skeptical about it. And for our purposes, a better word than supernatural, because supernatural gives us this picture of things happening in the physical world that defy uh, the laws of physics. And that's certainly true, but we're interested in a a slightly broader idea of the transcendental. And simply put, the transcendental is that which is true, which can't be proved by physics, right? It's, you know, the existence of God is is, is certainly one one example, right? Um, Can't prove by science. And so what I'm going to show you by the end of this class is that without appeal to some transcendental authority, you can't know anything. You're just making assumptions. Or what you're really doing is trading on borrowed currency, is what Van Til called it, right? You're assuming the things of God and using the things of God even though you deny God. And, and by the way, if you, heard, if you remember my, my class on Carl Truman and his, his, his work 
on the modern self, one of the things he writes about at some length is Frederick Nietzsche. And, and, and Nietzsche's like, startling and correct insight that once you take away God from the culture, once people no longer believe in God, once God is no longer the source of authority, then you don't get to keep the other stuff, right? You know, his, you know Nietzsche's madman walking around with a lantern um, was correct. And it's interesting that Nietzsche went insane. I think he went insane because he couldn't confront the, the reality, although I don't know. Um, but but you, don't, you don't get to keep civic virtue. You don't get to keep biblical morality. You don't get to keep a civil society or the basic ways in which we interact or live our lives or any meaning for your life whatsoever once you deny God. And that's a very, very bad place to be. Um, this is a fairly long quote from a letter that Van Til wrote to Francis Schaeffer in 1969. And I'm going to read you the whole thing sort of slowly, and then I want you to just think about it and we'll digest it a little bit. It's, I normally don't like to use quotes this long, but I thought this was such so good, because a lot of Van Til's hard to understand, and I thought this was very clear. The natural man assumes that there is a principle of rationality, including the laws of logic, that is, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, and the law of contradiction, which is, like the facts, just there. The fact he speaks of assumes to be non-created facts. There is no curse that rests upon nature because of man's sin. The natural man, and by natural man he's using in quotes to mean the unregenerate man, assumes that he himself, being just there, can relate the space-time facts, which are just there, by means of a principle of rationality that is just there, to one another, or that if he cannot do this, no one can. It does not occur to him to think of God as the one whose thoughts are higher than his thoughts. How do I, as a Christian, know all this information about the natural man? Christ tells me in Scripture. Moreover, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit gives me life from the dead, so that I understand this is not merely in an intellectual fashion, but existentially. I've been born again unto knowledge. Once I am born again, I know that I am a creature made in the image of God. I now know that together with all men, I became a sinner, a covenant breaker, subject to the wrath of God. I now know that Christ died to redeem me from the curse that rested upon me for my disobedience of the law of God, and that in him I am now justified. I know that I am, together with the body of the redeemed, on the way to my Savior's presence. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, I am now persuaded that I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, and that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. And so... I'm making some study of the interaction between Van Til and Schaefer, and I might have more on that later because I think it's fascinating. But the point Van Til is making here, he's comparing the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. He's doing exactly what I've been describing to you. And he points out that to the non-Christian, particularly the, he's talking about sort of a modern sort of skeptic materialist type person, he's assuming all these things that are just there, the laws of logic, the rules of reason. He's assuming that his very existence, his ability to think as a basic assumption for which he has no foundation. And then he contrasts that, and Van Til says, hey, you know, I, I, I know, not only do I know those things about the natural man, but I also know some stuff about myself, because 
It's in the Bible. It's in the Holy Scriptures. I know that I'm a sinner, that I've broken the law of God, and that through Christ I am reconciled to God. And so he is, he, you're seeing there the demonstration of this idea of the Bible is the root of all knowledge. And if you don't have it, you don't really know anything, and you're really assuming the Bible. You're really assuming God. Um, because absent transcendental authority, you don't have an answer to the big questions of life. And you don't have a basis for living your life. I'll note here that the presuppositional method, while devastatingly effective in dealing with the secular materialist, is somewhat less effective in talking to Muslims or Hindus or others who hold a non-Christian worldview that is based on transcendental authority. I don't say it's not effective because I've used it effectively, um, but that's typically where the person you're talking to is not particularly devoted to this other system. If you meet a truly devoted Muslim who believes that you know, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet and it's all in the Koran, I'm going to have to have a slightly different conversation with that guy because he's going to be pointing to transcendental. He's like, oh, no, no, I, I have a basis for my beliefs. It's right over here. Uh, and you've got to learn Arabic to read it. So that, that's going to be a slightly different conversation. But this is devastatingly effective for the modern Western person who doesn't claim the truth of a religion. And, you know, you meet people. I had a you know, Hindu cab driver in Atlanta this week who told me that, you know, he was a Hindu, but he was okay with his kids following any religion they want. And he told me this as I was about to step out of the car, so I didn't have time to take, to take it apart. But I thought, okay, so is, is Hinduism true or isn't it? Because if it is true, then why in the world would you want your kids to hold to some other worldview? And if it isn't true, why do you believe it? Right? <laughs> that can't possibly be a consistent rational position. He was a nice guy. I wish I had had time. But, um, so, I said earlier, the basis of the Christian worldview is the Bible is true, and we can rely on it. We, from that, we can trust our senses and our reason. We also have answers to the origin of the universe and what happens after death. I, and I, I would put to you, brothers and sisters, that there is no answer to the question of the origin of the universe or the meaning of life apart from transcendental authority. Now, many of you might have had a conversation at some point with some secular person who would say to you, oh yeah, origin of the universe, big bang. Probably, probably don't know what that means. And if we were to speak to a, you know, a physicist and sort of dig into what you know, various scientists have postulated about that, there's one devastating question that pushes right past that and say, what caused the big bang? What is the origin? And at some point, you get to the bottom after a couple more questions, where they're just standing there looking at you. I don't know. Who can know? Nobody knows. That's not true. I know. I know a bunch of people at 3000 Grove Avenue who know. And how do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. All right. Um, I'm going to keep saying this bit about the Bible is the Word of God and the Bible is true and stick to it, because if there's one thing you hold on to in having an apologetics conversation, it is that. Right, And the Bible is, of course, self-proving, at least to an extent. Um, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our knowledge is translated here, fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corruptible, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so put Proverbs 1.7 and Psalm 14.1 there in contrast. Right, If you know God and you found your wisdom and your understanding on the existence of God and his word... Well, then you got something. If you're the fool who says in his heart that there is no God, then you're not going anywhere. So how do you know God exists? Because my Bible tells me so. 
Without God, you can't know anything. Um, this is a, a fairly well-known quote from Van Til. He says, I feel that the whole of history and civilization would be unintelligible to me if it were not for my belief in God. So true is this that I propose to argue that unless God is back of everything, you cannot find meaning in anything. I cannot even argue for belief in him without already having taken him for granted. And similarly, I contend that you cannot argue against belief in him unless you also first take him for granted. This is sticking the sword in. Arguing about God's existence, I hold, is like arguing about air. You may affirm that air exists, and I that it does not. But as we debate the point, we're both breathing air all the time. Dennis, were you wanted to comment? So the question from Pastor Bullock is, you know, can the unbeliever sort of practically know anything? And the answer is yes. He does actually know some true things, but he knows them because he's trading on borrowed currency. He knows them because he knows in his heart that God does exist. And he's just being inconsistent about it, right? Because if he really believed that God didn't exist, then he would be having an existential crisis. And most people don't have an existential crisis because most people think that, don't think that deeply about things. So there, <laughs> there's lots of people that are walking around assuming that you know, their car is going to stay on the road as they go across that curve in the interstate without even thinking about it, right? But if you dig down, you're going to find that, um, that there's no basis for that belief. And what we're going to do, because one thing some of you may be thinking, gee, Matt, this is all very interesting, but I don't know a lot of people who like to, to use the word existential in conversation. Um, what am I going to do with this, right? And so what I'm going to show you by the end is a method by which we can employ this at a level that we can talk to absolutely anybody. And we do that by arguing from morality. Because just as you don't have a basis for the laws of physics and the rules of reason, things most people don't think about, you also don't have a basis for morality and ethics. And those are things that everyone thinks about, frankly, all the time. And so we're going to learn how to use this in an incredibly effective manner um, to, to root out the fact that that person sitting across the table from you making strong moral claims about sexuality or abortion or government or taxes or whatever has no basis for it whatsoever apart from God. Dennis, did I address your question? All right. Next point. Think like a Christian. In order to defect, effectively defend the faith and answer the skeptic, we must learn to think like a Christian. I recently uh, preached a sermon about this, and I would um, commend it to you. Um, but we must not let our thinking be given over to secularism with Christianity as a sort of disconnected epilogue at the end. Our thinking has to not just have the Bible appended to it, we don't have a secular worldview with Christianity kind of tacked on. Rather, we have to have a worldview that is Christian at the core, with the Bible at its root from which all proceeds. Um, I've put up here 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. Um, I already read that to you, so I won't read it again. Um, our weapons are not of the flesh. That's on your handout, number eight. Weapons are not of the flesh. We don't use force or violence to vindicate Christ. That has been tried. It doesn't work, and it's also not biblical. Um, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Note here, again, the antithesis. Right here in 2 Corinthians, there are opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. There's the opinions and there's the knowledge of God, right? There is that conflict. 
to some very real sense, this is the Genesis 3.15 conflict. It is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It is Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Right? And that conflict has been with us ever since the fall, and it will be with us until Christ returns. So first, we must learn to think like a Christian. Um, This is from Greg Bonson. He says, the Christian does not have any area of his or her life that is surrendered to neutrality. No area of reasoning that is not related somehow to the prerogatives and claims of Jesus Christ. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is an expression of our love for God. Christians often don't see how disobedient they are in the way they think. They are intellectually lazy, intellectually disloyal to Christ, without knowing it in many cases. Um, We're going to explore this more fully later, but for now, remember that the Bible is true and the claims of Christianity are true. And if that is the case, as I said earlier, they are necessarily the central truths of life from which everything else must flow. The Bible is the standard of truth. That's on the handout there somewhere. I think I may have gotten these a little out of order. Yes, number 12. The Bible is the standard of truth against which everything else must be judged. So uh, let's see. We did number eight. Number nine, to do apologetics well, we must learn to think like a Christian. Number 10, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. And number 11, somehow this didn't make it on the slides. This is also from Bonson. We must learn to regiment, R-E-G-I-M-E-N-T, regiment our thinking so that what God has revealed in his word becomes, I think it's foundational and presuppositional, Sparky's nodding his head, for us and all that we do. Next, the myth of neutrality. Number 13, they aren't neutral and you shouldn't be either. I'll say that again, remember that. They aren't neutral and you shouldn't be either. person you are speaking to, your opponent in the apologetic debate or conversation, knows in his heart there is a God and is in rebellion against him. They are not neutral no matter what they say. That, that man or woman who says, well, you know, I just don't know, there is no just don't know. You are either at war with God or you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground. It's Christian or at war with God. It is eternal fate in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ, or it's eternity in hell. No quibbling. No, I don't know. Because you know what? On that last day in Revelation chapter 20, there's not going to be any doubt. It's going to be one or the other. And that's what we've got to drive at. So they're not really neutral. Philosophy that is founded on human principles is a lie from hell. True philosophy must be founded on the Word and on Christ to be true, to have any real claim on truth. They're not neutral, and you shouldn't be either. If we start a conversation, I said this earlier, if we start a conversation about the existence of God or the truth of the Bible with the assumption that it's not true, then we've already lost. Do not concede the opponent's presuppositions ever, ever under any circumstances. 
And consider that rationally, to start a conversation by assuming not God is every bit as arbitrary as starting the conversation by assuming God. There's really no merit to you know, one or the other if you were trying to look at it from a pure logic standpoint. So why would you concede it? And of course, it isn't really arbitrary at all because the skeptic is assuming big pieces of the Christian worldview and he won't admit it. He's breathing the air while denying that air exists. Now back to what Mr. Hutton raised for us a few minutes ago. Every formal system has its you know, self-verifying authority, has its basic assumptions, right? That is absolutely true. Every worldview must assume its ultimate authority. Unbelievers profess their neutrality in order to claim innocence before God. Well, you know, it's God's fault that I don't believe, not mine, so I'm not responsible. Well, this is wrong. But it also, consider, turns creation on its head, right? And that's true of a lot of these conversations. It's making you the judge of God, right? And you've probably had some conversations like this in your life where, where some, you know, I can't believe in a God who's like X. Well, brother, he believes in you. And he is how he is. And he doesn't change. And what you think of him has nothing to do with his existence or his attributes or the truth of his word. So one of the principal claims that you'll hear from the secular materialist is that he only believes in what can be observed or proven by science. Well, first of all, that isn't true because he believes in many things that can't be observed or proven by science. But secondly, it's necessarily false because nobody only believes things that he has personally observed. We all believe and operate necessarily on information that we have from some other source because somebody told us, because we read it in a book, we read it on the internet, we heard it on the news, whatever. We couldn't live our lives based only upon what we have personally observed. And it's just on its face absurd. But think about this. We've all been in school at one point or another. Consider the proposition that you're willing to believe everything it says in your biology book, but not what it says in your Bible. Well, why? Really? So you are taking it on, taking it as an taking it on, on assumption, on fact, as a presupposition, I suppose, that that book you bought at the bookstore that says biology on the cover, that everything in that is true, but you're not willing to make the same thing for, for God's Word in the Bible. <laughs> well, why? It's completely arbitrary, and it doesn't make any sense, and it ain't neutral. Um, this is from Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We see in this passage from Ephesians the antithesis once again. The Gentiles are futile in their minds. They're darkened in their understandings. They're alienated from the life of God because they have the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, right? Whereas the believer 
who has put off his old self in his former manner of life, renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. And you, you see this other place in Scripture, but you've got to be, sin breaks your mind. Sometimes called the noetic effects of sin. But the fall necessarily cracks our thinking like an egg. And the only way that it gets fixed is through the inward work of the Holy Spirit. So understand that when you're having this apologetic discussion with a non-believer, he is broken in his thinking in a way that you are not because you've been renewed. And so that helps us understand the irrationality and the absurdity with which we are contending. Um, I would also put, put to you, brothers and sisters, that starting with the not-God assumption is an anti-Christian position. It's anything but neutral, because there is no neutral. So it's either Christian or anti-Christian. So why in the world would you concede the anti-Christian position? It defies the truth that is written in our hearts. Do not be taken in by false neutrality. And I've got just a couple more slides here, and I think I can finish. Um, as I said earlier, there is no middle ground. There is total war, is what there is, between Christianity and not Christianity. Our worldview as believers is utterly incompatible with all other worldviews. It's one or the other, right? And I'll, I'll, I won't read it to you, but I put up here 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, 22-23, and it, which it sort of exposes, again, this conflict between this is what the Christian thinks, this is what the, the Gentile thinks, this is what the Jew thinks. Um, they're inconsistent. The world looks upon the gospel as foolishness, um, and necessarily so, because their hearts haven't been regenerated. What the world proclaims as wise, God calls foolish. The foolishness of the gospel is how he has chosen to be reconciled. Two different worldviews that are fundamentally at war, different starting points, different methods. The war is at world with God. Excuse me, the world is at war with God. Um, think about Psalm 2, if you want a good reference for that. And peace comes only through submission to Christ. Um, I guess I said all this. Yeah, in, this, is, this is good. In principle, believers and unbelievers have nothing in common. In practice, as Dennis pointed out earlier, we have common ground because the non-believers are inconsistent because they're assuming the things of God, and that's how we're able to you know, sort of interact. But at bottom, we're not consistent. We're not, we can't be reconciled. Um, 1 Timothy 6.20, avoid the, irreverent, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Um, in summary, everyone, whether believer or unbeliever, takes things for granted. Everyone has those things which they no longer question, but which they just assume. These are presuppositions. The standard by which they think they can discover more truth about the world, right? Everyone has a, has a method of doing this, and everybody has a philosophy of life that tells them what the limits of reality, the standards of discovery are, and what our methods should be. In other words, everybody has a worldview, and we'll talk more about that next week. I am now out of time, and I thank you for your attention.